0: Well good morning. It is always good to be with you. The year was 1996. I was a, a senior in high school and my parents had decided that the, the plans for the evening were going to be a family movie night. Something of a, a tradition around our house. And when me and my sister were younger, that, choosing the movie was always easier. You know, we just picked whatever animated movie was out at the time, and we'd enjoy it together. But as we got older, making the choice of which movie to watch together that all of us were partially interested in got challenging. And it especially got challenging for my mother, who was worried about us being exposed to inappropriate material, right? Because you pick a movie we're all kind of interested in, it's not always rated G and so my my mom was always worried that we were going to accidentally pick the wrong kind of movie for family movie night my father was less worried about that and so one Friday afternoon he he says I've heard a lot about this movie Braveheart I think we should watch that tonight (laughs) and my mother had heard enough about it to be really nervous that this was not going to be a good balanced family movie, and so she said, the only way, Lewis, that we're going to watch this movie is if the remote never leaves your hand, and you, you make sure that you fast forward past anything that our children shouldn't see. So now, my dad had a fancy new VCR uh, with a remote. We've got a picture of the kind of remote it was. It, it's important that you understand how the remote worked for this story, So it had this wheel on it that that was for fast forwarding, but it also allowed you to go into a frame by frame mode. (laughs) There are 60 frames per second in a movie, 60. So he says, yeah, I got this brand new VCR, it's gonna be great, it's gonna be okay. So he rents the movie and we obliviously sit down to enjoy the famously family-friendly film. (laughs) Braveheart. My mother is yelling at my father to fast forward, literally every two minutes, from the time the film starts, and he's doing an admiral job. I mean, he's he's fast forwarding, so the movie's pretty short. Uh, there's there's a lot of people with blue paint fighting. I, we can't see much of that, and he's doing great, and until. We hit a scene that had a different kind of inappropriate material. There's a wedding night in Braveheart. If I'm told, if you, if you blink, you'll miss it, but that's not how it unfolded in our living room. <laughs> because my mother could tell by the lighting and the music and what was happening, that it was about to get inappropriate. And so she starts yelling at my father to fast forward, which he does. But he accidentally, fast forward so far, we missed some, what he calls, important dialogue to understand the plot, which none of us know at this point anyway. (laughs) So he tries to go back just far enough for the dialogue, but he manages to rewind right into the middle of the inappropriate content. My mother's screaming at him at this point. She has now left the couch and she is covering my eyes from whatever's happening on screen. And my dad is so rattled, he goes from fast-forwarding to pressing on accident, the frame-by-frame thing on the scene. And so now she's screaming at him, turn the wheel faster, Lewis, turn the wheel faster. And I hear him trying, and he's like, he's going to set the remote on fire. He's trying so hard to get through this scene. Needless to say, the Robinsons never finished the film Braveheart, I mean, ever. And it took us months before we sat down to watch a movie again together. It's hard, isn't it, as a parent, as, as you try to decide what you're going to let your children see? Because we live in a world that's filled with images. Some of it's beautiful, breathtakingly beautiful. It's good. It's sacred. And then there's other images that are troubling. And we have to balance as parents what we let our children see, what we try to, to help them not see. And there's things that, that they're just too young. We don't want them to see. There's some things we just hope they'll never see, no matter how old they get. We want to shield them. We don't want them to be exposed to something, right? To, to images that might trouble them or confuse them and cause them to have feelings that they don't, they don't understand or they, they don't know how to get away from. We don't, we don't want to expose our children to things that we know could be harmful to them. But then there's another side of this, about 20 years ago, it seems like, or so, we, we started talking a lot more about something I hadn't heard much about in our culture, which was something pretty basic, but I think we've all heard, peanut allergies, right, that I never really heard much about it, and then suddenly I realized that there were people that were allergic to peanuts, and not just a little bit, I mean, they they could go into to shock, they could, they could stop breathing, they could die, and so... Suddenly it was a conversation that people had and doctors were starting to have conversations with parents and saying, you know, because of the risk with, with peanut allergies, you should shield your child from being exposed to, to peanuts from, I think, birth to two years old. Don't, don't let them have peanuts, don't let them have anything with peanuts in it. And, and it made sense, right? There's an abundance of, of caution give them a little time to get a little bigger and a little stronger and to be able to handle any sort of adverse reaction they might have. But here's what has happened since then, right? That we now have some doctors saying, we think now that by not exposing children, all children to peanuts until they're two years old, we are actually creating a situation in some children where they're allergic to peanuts for the rest of their lives when they wouldn't have otherwise been. Right? That, that there's this strange reality in life where we understand that sometimes underexposure can be as harmful as, as, as overexposure. And so we have this, this difficulty where we've got to try to find that balance. Now, we're all different. We're, we're unique in countless ways. But I have yet to run into a person who doesn't love a good story. We we love good stories. We we watch them, we read them, we listen to them, we get caught up in them. And and we do that because they they don't just entertain us, they they can capture us, they can take us somewhere out of out of kind of the, the mundane, everyday lives that we have into something that, that feels exciting or adventurous, or maybe they give us hope or joy when we're not really finding that in our own lives. Captivating, compelling stories are something that, that people have always loved and and will always love. Well there's this there's this one captivating compelling story that the apostle Paul experiences in his life. We call it the story of the gospel, the story of the the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it's not just compelling to Paul, it's not just captivating to Paul, it's doing something different, right? Because it's not just inviting him into some some kind of better world, it's, it's not just taking him to some alternate universe for a little while in his imagination, because it doesn't matter how, how good a story is, oftentimes when it takes us someplace in our imagination, we don't really stay there, the, the best of stories often fade from our hearts and our minds quickly, but this story, this story stays with Paul, and it's not so much that it takes him someplace else, into a different world or an alternate universe, now Paul understands something about the gospel story, the, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it's not that it takes us out of this world to a different one. It's that it changes our world. It breaks into our world, into our lives. And it doesn't, it doesn't fade like any other story that we've ever read or listened to or watched. It, it holds on to us. It changes everything. The story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ means everything, changes, that all things are made new. And Paul understands that that's not just true for him. It it has to be true for everyone, whether they realize it yet or not. It has to be true for everyone. He talks about this amazing story, this, this story that comes to us and changes our world and changes us in his second letter to the Corinthians. Got a Bible open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start reading together in verse 14. Paul writes For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again, so, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And all of this be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is, without a doubt, one of my favorite collection of verses in the Bible. Paul eloquently talks about this life-changing story, this reality that breaks into our world and, and he doesn't just eloquently describe it. He declares something about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we may not know, or even if we've known it before, we, we might have forgotten. And, and that is this, that the only hope of the world is undeserved reconciliation. That's the only hope for the world. Undeserved reconciliation. And, and Paul says... It's not enough to just think about that. He, he declares that we have been made ministers of that reconciliation. Right? That We don't just talk about it. We, we try to live it. We try to embody it. We don't just proclaim it. We, we try to help people experience what it is God has not only done in Christ, but what God is still doing in Christ, in our lives and in our world. That what it's all about for Paul is this reality, this this acknowledgement that what we have managed to do, even through our best efforts, what we have managed to do is break relationship with God and with one another. And what, what God is not about to abandon, what he's not going to give up on is this hope, this dream. That because of his love for us, and because of his love through us, that we really can. Declare and live this reality that God wants more than anything else for his relationship with us to be restored. And more than that, for our relationships with one another to be restored in the same moment. This is, for Paul, the heart of the matter. Now, how do you think, how do you think the, the, the people of the world would receive the church... If the one thing they knew about us was that we wanted to show them the undeserved reconciliation of God. You think maybe they would receive us a little bit different? Do you think they would see us a little bit different? That if the one thing people knew about us was that we wanted to... To not just experience for ourselves, but to extend the undeserved reconciliation of God. There are so many things, even in the life of the church, that distract us from that. It's straightforward. It's a simple concept. It's a little more complicated to live out. And so often we change the subject, often we talk about other things, often we focus on other things, but Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't want us to lose focus on this. We are ministers of reconciliation. And he gives us new names. He says we are Christ's ambassadors, as if God were making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us. What's the appeal? Be reconciled to God. What does that mean? I know it sounds complicated and deep. What does it mean? Paul says it in a very straightforward, at least grammatically simple phrase, not counting people's sins against them. Not counting people's sins against them. I have a feeling that despite our best intentions, that's not how people would describe the church. Not counting people's sins against them Now how do we do that? Well, there's, there's kind of a prerequisite If we're going to be ministers of reconciliation If we're going to be Christ's ambassadors If we're going to f- try to not only talk about or describe But help people experience the truth That neither God nor we Are holding their sins against them And it has to do with our eyes it has to do with the way we see people. It has to do with the way we perceive not only who they are, but who we believe God can help them be. You've heard it. If you've gone to church much at all, you've heard this passage in Bible classes and, and worship and, and conversations. You could say it with me. From, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Paul has a habit in this passage of saying things directly that are are challenging to live out. How do you become a minister of reconciliation? How do you become somebody who is Christ's ambassador? You stop seeing people the way we always tend to see people. And you try to find a way, through the power of the resurrection... To have new eyes, to have a new way of seeing, a new way of, of seeing not only the person who stands in front of you, but the potential that grace makes makes possible in them and through them and for them. It's hard to make that choice over and over again. From now on, Paul says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. It's it's not just children whose vision we try to limit, right? It's not just family movie nights. It's all of us. We try to limit what we have to see, don't we? I mean, there's, there's things in our world, there's, there's things in our lives that we just, we don't want to acknowledge. We, we don't want to see it at all. I think we really have to take a second and be honest with how that actually plays itself out in our lives. You know, I'm sure there's some people in this room that can't stomach the sight of blood. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm I'm thinking more of a, a story that I heard, oh, it has to be at least 15 years ago now when I was a college student at ACU. I had a professor there who told us a story about his wife and we're gonna call her Sarah. And I, I need you to know that Sarah is uh, a kind, patient, gentle, godly woman—the the kind of Christian that all of us would want to grow up to be someday. Suge Springer, right? Okay. And I'm hearing this story 15 years ago, and, and about that time, she's in her uh, early 60s, and her her career's kind of in in. You know, it's, it's winding down, and, and she's been driving the same way to work year after year, day after day, over and over and over again. And for some reason, at some point, she gets into a, a rut in, in driving that route to work. Now, you know Abilene has all kinds of people living in it, of all kinds of different uh, financial means. And in, in a town this size, you can try to avoid that but you have to work at it. You have to try to not see people who are struggling on the streets. Well, she, she's taking the same route to work every morning and it just so happens that she gets stuck every morning at the same stoplight, right? She never gets through it. And there happens to be a guy that stands there with a cardboard sign every morning, every morning. And you can imagine when that happens day after day, that the, the journey you go through in your heart of what to do and maybe the first few times she scrounges around in the car and she finds some money and she gives it to him. But day after day after day, she gets stopped at the light. He's standing there, the cardboard sign's there, begging for help. And she knows that he's not a couple of bucks from anything. But she doesn't know what to do. And she goes through times where it makes her feel ashamed. It makes her feel angry. It makes her feel frustrated. She gets tired of it and, and she can't take it anymore. So what she decides to do is to take a different route to work. Right, So she doesn't have to see it anymore. Because seeing a social problem day after day after day, that she doesn't feel like she, she knows how to, how to fix it all, it's just too much. It's not something she wants to see. Now, it'd be easy for us to say, I wouldn't do that. But we do it. We intentionally stop seeing. We intentionally close our eyes to things that we give up on, ever changing, ever getting better. And maybe for you, it may not be somebody on on the side of the road. It may be that you can't watch one more moment of nightly news because of what you're going to hear. It it may be that you you can't handle one more story about injustice in our world. It may be that you can't handle one more expose on, uh, on sexual slavery that's going on all over the place and in our, our nation, and I'm guessing in our city, right? All kinds of pain and problems and sorrow, and we don't, it, it gets to, to the place where we say it's too much. And we close our eyes. We look away. We look away to shield ourselves. We look away to, to protect our hearts and our souls. We look away to protect our children's hearts and souls. We, we look away, brothers and sisters, for all kinds of good reasons, but here's the problem. Sometimes underexposure can be as harmful as overexposure that something starts to happen to us in our world when people who follow Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, and now declares that everybody can live and die and rise again, that the resurrection is not just a historical fact, but it is a present reality, that somehow we believe that nobody is beyond hope. That when we are the people, the Easter people, when we stop looking, When we stop seeing, something starts to die in our world. Something starts to die in us. We all make the choice of whether or not we're going to allow the power of the resurrection to change how we see. In a world where there are things we just don't want to see. We simply cannot be ministers of of reconciliation. We cannot be Christ ambassadors if we're always looking away or closing our eyes to the things that we don't want to see, the people, the places, the situations all around us and inside us that desperately still need reconciliation. So we're going to have to find... We're going to have to make the choice, right, to find the courage, the, the compassion that it's going to take to look, to really look, to really see all the unreconciled, broken places in our world, in our nation, in our town, in our neighborhoods, in our church, in our own families, because those places are there. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's the last thing we want to do sometimes. I know it scares us if we're honest. Do you remember what Paul says to us this morning? From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We once regarded Christ in that way, but we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. That's what Paul says. Or another way to say it is, if if anyone is in Christ... All things are new. If anyone is in Christ, they're given new eyes. Resurrection eyes that help them see, to really see, not just the darkness, but to see beyond the darkness, to the light, to the life, that God and God alone makes possible in our lives and in the lives of other people who we are tempted to not actually see. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. And it changes, it changes everything. And if it's going to change everything, it's going to have to change how we see everything and how we see everyone. With Resurrection Eyes, we, we no longer see our world as a place of evil where the only option is to run away from it. Instead, what we understand is the evil in our world Is losing. And even though it's losing, it's still hurting people all over the place. And so our world is a world of great suffering, of great beauty, but of great suffering. And we are not called to run away from that suffering. We are instead called to run towards it. Compelled, Paul says, with the love of Christ in our hearts filling our souls, moving our hands, helping us serve. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. With, with Resurrection Eyes, we, we no longer see our personal happiness as a, as a goal that we'll spend any amount of money on ourselves to reach and experience. But from now on, we're going to decide that the most worthwhile goal we can possibly have in this life is to partner with God to love God to love our neighbors as ourselves and to be willing to spend any amount of financial resources to invest in that kingdom goal instead of our own with with resurrection eyes brothers and sisters we we no longer see people who we don't agree with as obstacles that we're going to develop strategies to overcome with resurrection eyes we don't see people who we actually agree with already as as objects that we can move around on some sort of chessboard in life To, to manipulate them and use them to, to further our agendas With with resurrection eyes, we refuse to see one another Through the broken and and jaded lenses Of the labels that we are all too quick well To, to apply, black and white, rich and poor Married, single, legal, illegal, hardworking, lazy, addicted Sober, conservative, liberal, male, female, American, foreigner Christian, non-Christian, believer, atheist, ally, enemy, friend, foe, us, them. But instead, with resurrection eyes, we see people, all people, and all of their distinctive diversity, as deeply loved children of God. And in the worst scenario, the worst case scenario, this is how we see them. As potential future partners with us In the good work of reconciliation As potential future partners with us In God's good work In the world For the sake of the world You remember Sarah, right? The the gentle Kind Godly woman who Couldn't take it anymore She started driving a different way to work Well, I don't remember, I heard this story a long time ago. I I don't remember how long it took her, if it was a couple of weeks or if it was a few months or if it was a couple of years, I don't know. But at some point she found herself taking that same route back to work and she found herself stuck at that same stoplight. And she looked out her window and she saw the same person holding the same sign. But this time she saw something entirely different because she was looking at him through resurrection eyes. And this time she didn't just see a social problem that she didn't know how to fix. This time she saw a person with problems who she refused to define by his problems. She saw a person with God-given dignity and worth. She saw somebody who if, if somebody would just care enough to stop and talk, and really listen that that this this broken person was more than just a broken person, that that he had potential, that that he had gifts, that that he could he could be a blessing to other people in the world if somebody would just care enough about him to help him to, to let him become that blessing. So she was done feeling guilty, she was done feeling frustrated, and she found. A program here in Abilene that reached out to people who were at the end of their rope and and needed basic help in how to become uh, an adult, right? How to how to keep a job and, and how to how to pay rent and how to how to help the people in their lives. And and this was 15 years ago. And in the in the intervening time, she has invested relationally not only in this guy on the corner but in in countless other people. In this program And I've been thinking all week About the name of that program And I heard the story so long ago I can't remember it You know what? It doesn't matter Pick a name Salvation Army Love and Care Ministries Christian Homes Christian Services Pick a name Pick a program Pick Bar Church Pick something we need to see people. And when we see them, when we look at them, we need, we need to find the faith to imagine God's preferred future for them. That's what it means to live with resurrection eyes. From now on, Paul says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Don't you want to see that way? I know I do. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our, our shepherds and their wives are going to be available to you to pray with you, to talk with you. Shepherding couples, if you would start to get up so that people can kind of see where you are. If you came this morning and you need to pray with another Christian, please go to them. If you came with a heart filled with joy and you want to pray a prayer of thanksgiving, Go to them. We want to be community to one another. Let's stand and sing.